Welcome. Please accept Jim and John's invitation to join them as they once again ask, what do you think about... Hey, what do you think about jobs? You know, taking what they're given because you're working for a living and all that shit. Personally, I am particularly interested in jobs right now. A purge devastated my section at work, resulting in the immediate termination of three of the four employees. I had the good fortune to be retained through the end of September. But the end is in sight. So, as I said, that means I'm very interested in jobs right now. I know a lot of people bitch and moan about having to work. But, hysterically speaking, there have been some occupations that really warrant complaint. And I'm going to cover a few of them today. At some point in their career, almost everyone says their job is crappy. That's probably not literally true today, unless you work in a waste management plant or uh, something like that. But, back in the day, some jobs were actually... mm, shitty. Let's start with the oldest crappy job I unearthed. Even though he was supposed to be a physical manifestation of Horus, the Egyptian pharaohs still suffered humanly afflictions, such as indigestion and constipation. When such an outrage on his divine presence was encountered, enter the pharaoh's anus blower. This dude took care of the monarch's keister. When the malady struck, he was given the order Rear March, and he earned his paycheck. He would produce a long, golden tube, fill said tube with hot water, gently place one end in the roller's arse, and place the opposite to his lips, and proceed to blow the hot water up into the pharaoh's bowels. Kind of an oral enema. Something which I am certain you can Google and find modern instances of yet today. Man, I just hope he remembered which end of the tube was for the butt the next time duty called. How's that for an invasion of something that should be personal? You know, if I'm applying an enema, I don't necessarily want someone doing it for me. At least not in this fashion. I mean, bathroom time is gym time, and gym always flies solo. But the pharaohs of ancient Egypt were not the only members of the royal class that needed a little help in the comfort station. England's King Henry VIII created the position groom of the stool. This lucky individual's duties included monitoring and assisting in the executions of the king's bowel movements. I did read that this monitoring and assisting did not include the act of wiping. But who really knows? What it did include were the following. Lugging around a portable commode with all of the necessary accoutrement. Water, towels, a wash basin, stuff like that. He'd also keep an eye on the king's diet. And I'm sure he kept a watch out for certain foods that might... uh adversely affect his work after the meal had had some time to digest. He also had to be a bit of a prophet and would have to plan his own day around the king's expected and unexpected bowel movements. As the role progressed, other responsibilities were added, including 
assisting in the dressing and undressing of the king, keeping tabs on the expenditures of the privy purse, dictating who was and was not allowed to have access to the king in his personal chambers. He also would act as the king's private secretary. Due to the closeness at which the two interacted, the groom often became the confidant of the king and shared in his intimate knowledge. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, the groom of the stool was replaced with the lady of the bedchamber. Astonishingly, the métier of the groom of the stool existed until 1901 when King Edward VII decided he could handle that task on his own. After he was uh, released, I wonder what that particular listing on his resume did for James Hamilton, second Duke of Abercorn, who was the last man to hold the position. While it is an amusing topic, let's face it, everyone shits. There's even a children's book about it. And with everyone shitting, Something had to be done with all that waste prior to the advent of today's modern plumbing. I mean, I know that the Romans had plumbing and flush toilets and all that crap, but their plumbing didn't have the uh, expansiveness of today's. And since nature abhors a vacuum, someone stepped in to take on the challenge. In the Tudor era... That's 1485 to 1603 CE. The position of gong farmer was created. Required to work only under the cover of night, these intrepid farmers removed poop from the uh, gentry's estates, and here's how they'd do it. If there was no local river available for people to dump their shit into, castle garderobes were positioned over a uh, cesspit. There were also communal outhouses, known as Houses of Easement, built over much smaller pits than those under the castle. After dark, three or four men would go out to these excrement-collecting pits and get busy. One would enter the pit with a shovel and some buckets. One would haul the buckets up out of the pit and the other one or two would carry the buckets to their shit wagon and unload the contents therein. They were also responsible for cleaning and clearing the shafts leading from the shitter itself down into the cesspit. The standard going rate for a gong farmer in the 15th century was two shillings. That's about $90 today. The gong farmers would then sell their excavated wares to farmers for fertilizer. Also. As a bonus, any jewelry or other valuables found in the muck was claimed as a windfall. Or maybe a break windfall? Gong farmers were also known as night soil men. Which I prefer to gong farmer, I think. Unfortunately, we're not yet finished with turd-related occupations. During the Victorian era... Uh, about 1837 to 1901, kids, we find the following. The Pure Finder. Now, this cat had a shitty job, collecting dog droppings from the streets and carting them off to sell to the local tanners. Dog poop was known as pure because it had the innate ability to clean and soften leather 
purifying the tough leather into a fine product. Who knew? I certainly didn't. I read that when the occupation first appeared in the 1830s, these finders made some decent money because they were so few in number and there was little competition. I mean, who wants to go around picking up dog shit, right? However, as with all good jobs, more and more people wanted a piece of the action, literally, and began to ply the trade. By the late 1800s, the number of pure finders carting in loads of canine feces to tanning shops caused a downturn in the product's worth. I read that there were only around 30 tanneries in operation, and um, the vast influx of fecal matter undermined the uh, lucrativeness of the occupation. And as chemicals were developed to replace the necessity of dog turds, the pure finders became obsolete. In direct relationship to the pure finder was the occupation of tanner, because they had to work with the feces being brought in by the finders. Tanneries were notoriously foul-smelling and were required to operate on the outskirts of town. Another, let's say, less than desirable opportunity for employment was that of the tosher. Toshers were people who would uh, clamber down into the sewers and sift and sieve through the raw sewage in the hope that they might find something valuable therein. According to Henry Mayhew, author of the four-volume London Labor and the London Poor, toshers could make six shillings a day, which, if you would convert that era's money to today's money, is about 50 bucks a day. If they work six days a week, they could be making 300 bucks. And that's about, uh, what, 15600 per year? Not great money, but uh, hey, you could double or treble or even quadruple it by getting your spouse and your offspring to help you. The last ordure related occupation I'm going to discuss is that of the necessary woman. Back in the good old days, you know, back even before I was born, Indoor toilets were rare. People would do their business in chamber pots. Well, these thunder mugs had a finite capacity, and you don't want that shit or piss sitting around the house. So, it was necessary to empty them. Hence, the necessary woman. The job did have a couple of benefits, according to uh, the website, Oddy.com, if so employed, you were probably staying in a mansion or castle of the lord or lady you served, and the pay was very competitive for the time. So, enough of that shit, right? And uh, knowing our audience, as I think I do, I'm sure you're out there thinking, hey Jim, people do more than take dumps. Are there any interesting jobs dealing with other forms of human discharge? And in response to that, I say, let's take a trip back to the days of ancient Rome. The Roman Empire was quite a thing, wasn't it? And its citizens liked to party to excess, consuming food and beverage at alarming rates. And everyone who has partied to excess knows that eventually, you vomit. 
The Romans had the solution to this problem. The vomit collector. These lucky saps would carry containers into which revelers could spew, making space for more intake so they could spew again later. Moving ahead a little in time, we come to the job of wool fuller. In order to soften the wool a bit to make it less chafing when rendered into clothing, wool fullers were employed. They would work the wool with their bare feet for hours. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? Well, how about the fact that the wool was placed in barrels of stale urine before the fullers began doing their footwork, tromping the wool like they would tromp uh, grapes to make wine? The ammonium salts found in urine both cleaned and softened the fabric. It also served as a whitener and a brightener. Let's pause right here while I take a bathroom break, and uh, the rest of you can listen to this plug for Anchor Podcasting. All right, I'm back, and I'm ready to continue. Now, all of the unpleasant jobs of the past weren't related to bodily expulsion. How about the job of whipping boy? So, what did you do if the king or the lord's kid was an obnoxious, spoiled brat. You, as a mere employee of the palace or the manor, couldn't just go up and cuff the prince or princess or the little lordling, could you? Hell no, you couldn't. At least, not if you wish to keep your head. Well, that's when you'd bring in the whipping boy. Supposedly, when the prince acted like a fuckhead, the poor whipping boy was the recipient of the disciplinary physical punishment. Also, supposedly, the princeling and the whipping boy would grow up together. As they did so, their relationship would mature into a close friendship. The idea here being that the prince, not wishing physical pain upon his best friend, would learn to act like a human being instead of a spoiled royal. One note to add to this one. While the term whipping boy is in use yet today, there is no concrete evidence that this was an actual thing. Another not-so-fun occupation filled by children was that of the crossing sweeper. The streets of Victorian England, and probably every other town and city of the era, were nasty, dung-filled, and urine streaming from horse-drawn vehicles and passers-by. Then there's always the regular old dirt and grime and trash that collects in an urban setting. And the very air one breathed was just full of smoke and soot. Enterprising street kids would stake a claim on an area of these filthy streets. When upper-class folks would pass... The turf owner would walk ahead of them and clear the rubbish from their path, allowing the clothes and shoes of the wealthy passers-by to remain at least relatively clean. The crossing sweeper would then hope for a gratuity in reward for his service. Another two historically bad jobs were number one, leech collector, and number two, rat collector. Now, we all know that doctors used to practice bloodletting to cure various illnesses. The practice may be well over 3,000 years old. In the 2nd century BCE, 
the Roman physician Galen was a proponent of arteriotomy, a bloodletting method meant to reestablish the balance of the four humors, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. The following tools were used in the process of bloodletting. Fleams, which looked like pocket knives sporting several blades. Spring lancets, which had a single thin blade. Scarificators, another tool with multiple blades. And finally, leeches. Leeches could be hard to obtain. So, enterprising people took on the responsibility of providing a supply to physicians. One popular method of catching leeches involved a certain amount of self-sacrifice on the part of the leech catcher. He would wade bare-legged into a shallow pond or slow-moving stream, hoping to entice any hungry leeches within the area to the succulent meal provided by his bare limbs. Upon returning to the banks, the businessmen and women would pull the vampiric worms from their legs and pop them into a pot. On the downside of the profession, leech collectors were in danger of suffering exsanguination and various blood-borne diseases. Now on to the rat collector. Rodents have long dwelt side by side with human beings, prospering along with us multiplying exponentially within our walls, granaries, alleys, parks, and sewers. When the rodent situation would get out of hand, the rat catchers would step in to save the day. Some rat catchers would cover themselves in fragrant oils to attract their prey. Once the rodents were within reach, the catchers would reach out and grab them, killing them barehanded. Some did use dogs or ferrets rather than risk their own digits. The animals would sniff out the rats in the warrens and then attack them viciously, killing them and presumably dragging the corpse back to their uh, owner. Some rat catchers would capture the rodents alive. Some of these yet-living rodents were sold to ratters who ran dog and rat fights for fun and profit. The rats would be released into a pit and then a terrier would be introduced into the situation. Onlookers placed bets as to how long it would take the dog to kill all of the rats. Others were sold as pets. The position of rat catcher was not without its health hazards. The rodents' fleas carried diseases. Their bites, if left untreated, could result in some nasty infections. So, as we can see, some historical jobs were just plain unhealthy. And not only back in the ancient times. Matchstick factories employed women and children, forcing them to labor 12 to 16 hours a day, constantly dipping wood slivers made of poplar and pine into a solution comprised of white phosphorus, antimony sulfide, and potassium chlorate. Now, the problem with this is the little fact that overexposure to phosphorus fumes is bad for one's health, often bringing on a condition then known as fossy jaw. Fossy jaw is a horrible ailment that starts with a pain similar to a toothache, then proceeds to rot the afflicted's jawbone. 
the phosphorus would actually cause the jawbones to radiate a greenish glow. The diseased bone would rot away, leaving behind gaping wounds that emitted a fetid discharge. As if that were not enough, the disease could spread, working its way into one's brain, resulting in a painful death. One cure was to remove the jaw. However, this did not guarantee the victim's survival. The white phosphorus could also cause inflammation of lung tissues and other pulmonary maladies. Matchstick employees sometimes regurgitated fluorescent sputum and would exhale bluish-looking breath. Fortunately for these poor laborers, the wrongful firing of a female in July 1888 led to a newspaper expose revealing the inhumane work conditions endured by the matchmakers. Management tried to coerce employees into signing affidavits refuting these claims, but many workers had had enough and a huge strike resulted from the unrest. Eventually, thankfully, conditions did improve. Another fairly recent job that had horrible health consequences for employees was uh, that of a radium girl. In 1898, Marie and Pierre Curie discovered radium, that marvelous glow-in-the-dark element. Soon after, a whole host of commercial products were radium-laced, such as toothpaste, cosmetics, and even drinking water. William J. Hammer, an American inventor, mixed glue, zinc sulfide, and radium, producing a glow-in-the-dark paint. This paint was then used by a company named U.S. Radium to create wristwatches with radium dials. They billed the substance as Undark, which was made possible by the magic of radium. U.S. Radium would also receive government contracts during World War I to produce watches and airplane instruments for the military. U.S. Radium established factories in New Jersey and filled them with young women tasked with painting the watch dials with the Undark. There were no safety precautions in effect. According to AtomicHeritage.org, workers were encouraged to lick their brushes to keep the tip pointed and prevent the paint from drying. The same website goes on to say, by the end of the day, the women themselves would be glowing from the radioactive paint on their clothes and skin. Their hair, faces, hands, arms, necks, their dresses, their underclothes, and even the corsets of the dial painters were luminous. One of the girls showed luminous spots on her legs and thighs. The back of another was luminous almost to the waist. I don't know if this is true. But I've heard that these girls could be seen in the local dance halls at night, glowing as they spent a uh, fun evening out on a date. Naturally, U.S. Radium told everyone the substance was safe and that all this was a lie. And as they continued to refuse to accept responsibility and facts, for that matter, several workers suffered bone breakage, tooth loss, and spinal collapse. 
Finally, a U.S. Radium employee named Grace Fryer sued the company. She and four colleagues won a settlement of $250,000. But due to their outrageous medical bills, they ended up settling for a mere $10,000 each, along with a $600 annual payment. Unfortunately, none of the five lived longer than two years after this win. And that's uh, where I'm going to end that. It's kind of depressing me since I'm going to be out there pounding the pavement. It does bring a certain perspective to any complaints one might have about his or her present job. I'm sure that everything in today's work world isn't all roses, rainbows, and gumdrops, but I think everyone will agree that all of those were certainly historically horrible jobs. I personally have resolved not to apply for anything even remotely like some of the positions of employment I've discussed today. What Do You Think About is co-written by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Our theme music, In Suspense, is provided by PodSummit.com. Thanks to all you listeners. Please take the time to rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. Drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm forward slash wdouta for updates on releases. Copyright 2022 by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Sorry, everyone. Nothing extra this week. This one was close enough to 30 minutes that I didn't have to pad the time.